as our young people make their way out of the sanctuary, I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul opens this section, I'll read it in a minute, Paul opens this section by exhorting the Thessalonians to live lives that are pleasing to God. Okay, that's what this passage is about, living lives that are pleasing to God. And then he gives them instructions about how to do that, and he focuses on three big areas of life. He says, live life pleasing to God in the area of sex, in the area of your work, and in the way that you think about death. Sex, work, and death, those are really big major life categories, hey? We're going to take each one in turn. This morning, we're, we're, we're just going to try to get through the first one, sex. What could possibly go wrong? We're going we're gonna to read it for. <laughs> we're going to read it first and then pray for the Lord's help and then talk about it. First Thessalonians in chapter 4, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and for us too. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is indeed the word of the Lord. And the grass does wither and the flower does fade, but this word endures forever. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Holy Father, we've come now again to that time in the Christian's life when we gather together as a family in fellowship with one another at your table to be fed off your word. And so I pray that you would make your voice heard. I pray that we would have hearts and minds and ears open to hear it. I pray that if anything that I would say is unhelpful or misleading, that you would stop my mouth and redirect my thoughts so that I would not say things that are unhelpful. I pray that we would hear what you want us to hear this morning. Amen. All right, well, what is the Lord's will for you? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? What is the Lord's will for me, wouldn't you like to know? Wouldn't you like to know for sure? Wouldn't you like a prophet who could come to you and tell you with 100% certainty, this is the Lord's will for you? Wouldn't that be good? People would travel far and they would pay large sums of money for that information. Well, the good news is Paul is just such a prophet. 
And Paul makes a proclamation about the Lord's will for your life in this passage. It is worth its weight in gold if only we were willing to hear it and receive it. In our passage this morning, Paul says explicitly to all of us in verse 3, it is God's will for you that you be sanctified. That's God's will for you. I guarantee you, I know that 100% sure because it says it in the Bible. That's God's will for you and for me that we would be sanctified. Now, we just have to answer, what does that word sanctified mean? What does it mean for us to be sanctified? The root word of the word sanctified is the word holy. That's not obvious in English, but it is in in the Greek. It, It comes from the word holy. It means, sanctified, means to be set apart and separated and dedicated to holiness. Apart from other things which are not dedicated to holiness. Sanctified means that you look and act different than common things. That's what the word means. That sanctified things don't blend in, but they are designed by definition to stand out. That's built into the word. So, for example, just take a simple, small example. If you're the type of person that wears different clothes to Sunday worship than you do the rest of the week, right? It, that's, if you do or not, that's fine. There's no, I'm, not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying if you're the type of person that does that, then your church clothes are sanctified. What I mean is they're set apart as special, and you don't wear them during the rest of the week because these are your fancy clothes. These are your clean clothes. These are the ones that stand out from your other clothes, the rest of the clothes in your closet. So throughout the Bible, God indicated that he expects his people to be sanctified. That means we're not supposed to blend in with the rest of the culture surrounding us. But we have been set apart by God for a special purpose. Sanctified called to pursue holiness and worship in a way that is countercultural, that stands out from the rest of the culture. That is a theme that runs right through the entirety of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. God's people are his treasured possession, called unto himself, and supposed to be different, supposed to stand out, not supposed to be blending in with the rest of culture. That is a message that is repeated over and over throughout the Bible, and we've come to one of those passages here this morning, where Paul is saying that one of the ways that God desires us to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be different, is in how we express our sexuality. We're supposed to look different than the rest of our culture when it comes to our sexuality. Paul is explicitly clear on that, and if we don't, if there's no discernible difference between the way the church expresses and experiences sexuality and the way the world expresses and experiences sexuality, then that is a sign that things have gone horribly wrong. And since Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, thought it was important to instruct the Thessalonians about the Lord's will regarding sexual ethics, well then we too need to sit under this teaching and experience the goodness and the blessing that God has for us in this area of life. We're no different than them. All right, but before I get up on this tightrope, I'm not on it yet. Uh, Right now, I'm just walking up the ladder. Before you get a chance to see if I'm going to fall off or keep my balance, let me just say a few preliminary words. Ready? 
This is not the start of the sermon yet. This is, this is preliminary words. First, please hear this. A church service is supposed to be a safe place where everyone is welcome and loved. I hope that is the dynamic here. I believe it is, and I hope that's your experience too. If it's not, then something needs to change. You need to know right at the outset of this sermon that no matter what your sexual orientation, no matter what your views on sexuality, and no matter what ways you've sinned in the area of sexuality, and here's a spoiler, we've all sinned in the area of sexuality, Regardless of any of those things, you're welcome here, you're loved here, and we're glad you're here. That needs to be crystal clear. Second, to be welcome and to be loved is not the same as saying that all of your decisions and actions will be celebrated. Those are two different things. It is decidedly unloving to see someone making poor decisions and potentially harming themselves or others, and to not say anything. Calling sin, sin is not unloving. In fact, it is an expression of love and care. Third, my guess is that people are going to be paying slightly more attention to this sermon than perhaps some of my other sermons. I expect that many people here are right now wondering whether or not I'm going to address the elephant in the room. Here's what I want to say about that right at the start. If you're hoping right now that I say a certain thing because you want to make sure that everyone else hears that thing, then may I suggest that your focus is in the wrong place. This sermon isn't for everyone else. This sermon is for you. You are sometimes tempted to sin in the area of sexuality. I don't know everyone in this room, but I know that. And at some point, no doubt, you have given in to temptation and sinned in the area of sexuality. And God's desire, which we've seen clearly in this passage, is for your sanctification in this area. And mine. All of us. And so don't think to yourself right now, I hope he says something to that group of people. If you're not in that group of people, then that shouldn't concern you this morning. You should be paying attention to what God has to say to you this morning. And here's my final preliminary comment before I start the actual sermon. We all know that we're supposed to avoid sexual sin. The Bible is crystal clear on that point, and we also feel it in our consciences, right? That's how God made us. We know, we feel it, that sexual sin is wrong. But it would be a huge tactical error to decide that sex itself is the problem, which is sadly an approach that's been taken too frequently by the church in the past. It's as if the church collectively has decided, well, this topic is too dangerous and too awkward, makes us too uncomfortable, and so we're just going to box it up, put it on the shelf, and pile on a whole lot of shame around the topic and refuse to talk about it and just let everyone work it out on their own. Incidentally, that's how a lot of Christian parents also handle the topic with their kids, and that is a recipe for disaster. That is a totally dysfunctional way to deal with challenging topics. 
And that virtually guarantees that we will miss the blessing that God gave us when he gave us the gift of sexuality. The illustration that I like to use, and maybe you've heard me say it before, is that sex is like fire. Fire is both very, very good and necessary for life. It is also very, very dangerous. The solution to the problem is not to ban fire. It is not to make people feel ashamed for wanting to be around fire. The solution is to make sure that the fire stays where it's supposed to be so that we can experience the blessing and avoid the potential damage. And so we build nice brick hearths and chimneys or we install wood-burning stoves of cast iron or steel. The purpose of all of that is to get the benefit and the blessing of fire without the danger and the destruction. So what would you think about the person who decides they're in the mood for a fire and starts stacking kindling in the middle of their living room? Right? I hope you'd warn them that the course of action that they're about to embark upon is dangerous and foolish. And my guess is that they would respond and say, hey, who are you to tell me what to do? If fire is good, well then more fire is even better. And I'm going to build one wherever and whenever I want. And perhaps this individual builds their campfire in the middle of the living room. And perhaps at first it feels very nice. And maybe he even roasts a few marshmallows on it. But before you know it, it is raging and out of control and the whole house is burned down. And then the onlookers come along and they shake their heads and they say, See, that's why fire's bad. See, that's why no one should ever be allowed to have a fire in their house. And probably we shouldn't even talk about fires. But hopefully you hear that and you say, wait a minute, I, I don't think the problem is fire. It's that that guy wanted to have a fire on his own terms. That guy didn't respect the power of fire. He abused it, and as a result, he inflicted a lot of harm on himself. But the solution is not to get rid of fire. It is simply to keep the fire contained in the place where it is supposed to be so that it can bless us, and not harm us. All right, that's the controlling metaphor for the sermon. If you get it, you get the sermon. That's the goal this morning. We want to keep sex where it is supposed to be according to God so that it can bless us and not harm us. And the, uh, the key word that's going to help us do that, and on your mind if you think, what, what's one word that's going to help us do that, what you would come up with, but for the sermon, the key word that I want to focus on that will help us is the word covenant. Covenant. It's the context of covenant that keeps the fire safely in the fireplace and doesn't let it get out of control. Sexual immorality is like building that fire on the living room floor. The opposite of that, the fireplace, is to learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable and not like the passionate lust of our neighbors. That's the language of our passage. Remember, sanctification, which is the Lord's will for us, means being set apart and standing out and being different and acting by acting holy. I know that many of us don't like to be set apart and stand out and be different. We don't like the spotlight on us. I get that. But that is the calling called by a holy God to stand out in our holiness and to stand apart from a culture that has rejected his holiness. And Paul is saying 
that with regard to their sexuality, the Thessalonians had better be standing out and observably different than their culture. Their culture was notably impure when it came to sex, and he wanted the church to be different and to stand out. The key word there in this passage is, is translated sexual immorality in most translations. Sexual immorality. The word behind that phrase is a, is a Greek word that you already know. The word is porneas. Porneas. It's the word from which we get the English word pornography. And it means to engage in any sexual immorality of any kind. Now that's a broad definition, it's a very broad definition, and it's somewhat limited in its usefulness because it doesn't actually define what qualifies as sexual immorality. It just says all of it, all, any, sexuality of it, any sexual immorality of any kind. Okay, but the big debate these days, which I expect you're well aware of, is whether or not all acts of homosexual sex, by definition, are considered by the Bible as sexually immoral, or if homosexual sex within the context of a loving and committed relationship is okay. That's the debate. I spent a lot of time thinking and praying this week about how much to engage that debate this morning. I'm obviously aware of all the hurt and the pain that this question has caused, both in our denomination and in our own church here. I'm aware of how profoundly personal these issues are for many families here, my own family included. I am also aware of different ways in which the church in general, and our church specifically, has failed families on this issue. And if you think that I am looking for an excuse to talk about this issue, you don't know me at all. I promise you that. I'd much rather have leapt over this issue and talked about pretty much anything else. But as a pastor and as a preacher, I am accountable to God. And if I come to the end of a sermon, any sermon, if I come to the end of the sermon and you don't know what I really think, then I have failed you. If I come to the end of a sermon and all I've done is tell a few stories that made you smile for a minute and given you my opinion about things, then I have failed you. I remember one particular sermon, someone said to me afterwards, a couple days afterwards, said to me, it's not your job to tell us what you think the Bible says. It's a comment that still makes me smile a little bit because I'm pretty sure that exactly is my job. Or at least it's a significant part of my job. It, it, I am called to tell you to the best of my ability what the Bible says and how you and I are supposed to bring that to bear on our own lives. That is my job. And I would be doing a disservice to us if I did less than that. And as much as I hate the thought of looking out and seeing furrowed brows on people's faces whom I love and who don't like what I'm saying, I am even more motivated by the thought that at the end of this sermon, I am accountable to the Lord and I don't want to look on his face and see a furrowed brow after I preach a sermon either. Sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do. This sermon definitely qualifies as that 
for me. But listen, our culture takes every opportunity to evangelize us about their sexual ethics. We hear it all the time, all the time. And it is important that we hear about this topic in church as well from a biblical perspective because we're getting the other perspective every day. And listen, if you disagree with me on this issue, that's okay. We can disagree. I just want to encourage you to at least try to understand my view, try to understand where I'm coming from and why I have reached those conclusions. And I promise you, I'll do the exact same for you. I'll listen, I'll read the books you recommend to me, and I'll try my best to understand why you hold the view that you hold. We honor one another when we are honest and respectful in our disagreements. We dishonor one another when we pretend that there's agreement when there isn't. We have to learn to talk about our disagreements in a way that honors and respects one another. And here's the thing, we're not going to agree on everything. And that's okay. All right, we'll come to that in a minute. First, let me explain. Let me get back to what I meant when I said covenant is the key word that's going to help us here. What I meant is that sex is designed by God to be an intimate and a vulnerable act where two people give themselves to each other. No holding back, but give themselves physically and emotionally and with all that they have. And it is only within the context of a loving, committed, exclusive, safe relationship, a covenant relationship, that that works. When you remove the covenant context, you take something that's potentially one of the most deeply intimate and meaningful and satisfying experiences in life, and you remove it from the safety of that covenant commitment, then you turn it into a potential source of emotional harm and damage. At that point, the fire is, is out of the fireplace. This is how God designed marriage from the very beginning, to provide that safe relational safety, right? He created Adam and Eve for each other. He gave them to each other. He put them in covenantal relationship with each other. And he said, okay, now these two separate entities that I have created separately are going to become one. Two flesh, now one. And it will be a source of blessing and joy for you two. Made you for this. But also, it's going to be a source of blessing on the whole earth as you are fruitful and you multiply. The covenant relationship was the foundation for sexual intimacy. And in order to give yourself fully to the relationship, you need to know that there's mutual covenant commitment. Right? You need to know that there's some permanence to this union. Till death do you part. And there's no backup plan and there's no escape hatch, but you're both mutually committed one to another. Only then can you fully give yourselves to each other. Pastor Tim Keller, who recently passed away, refers to sexual intimacy within marriage as a covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, that's not especially romantic, but it's a good point. It's, it, it is a joyful and intimate way whereby each member of the marriage gives themselves and affirms their exclusive commitment one to another emotionally and physically. When sex is kept in the fireplace, 
in the context of loving covenant relationship, then it is preserved as a sacred act of self-giving and vulnerability one to another. It is the height of human intimacy as two people in love are, to use a biblical phrase, naked and unashamed together. And we're playing with fire when we attempt to experience the intimacy and the vulnerability of sexuality outside of the safety of the covenant context of marriage. Listen to what Paul says on this topic in another letter. He wrote about this topic often. In 1 Corinthians 7, he wrote this, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, there's that word again, porneas, because of the temptation to porneas, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He goes on in the same chapter. He says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Listen, in that passage, that's 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to look it up this afternoon, that passage, Paul is presenting two and only two equally valid, attainable, beautiful visions of how we can be sanctified, set apart, holy in our sexuality, how we can avoid sexual immorality. He says one option is, is singleness, which means celibacy, such as the Apostle Paul himself was living. He says, as I am. Or, if not that, then limiting your sexual activity to the confines of your marriage. Those are the only two options that Paul gives in this passage. Which means that sexual activity outside of marriage is outside of the bounds of what God intends for us. It's making a fire on the living room floor. That is what the word porneia refers to. Any sexual activity outside of the covenant context of marriage. You remember how this passage began. We're not supposed to blend in when it comes to our sexual ethics. Trust me. Trust me on this one. If we limit our experience of sex to the confines of marriage, and if we say that outside of marriage the only God-honoring option is celibacy, we will stand out. We will stand out because to the, to the culture of the first century Thessalonians, and to our 21st century culture today, that kind of biblical sexual ethic is considered ridiculous. Let's be honest, it is. Just considered ridiculous. But according to the Bible, it's not okay for two unmarried individuals to cohabitate and sleep together. Paul said that the couple is supposed to be married. He said that explicitly. But in our culture, it is practically assumed that the natural order of things is that you live together first. That way you can find out if you're compatible and also it's financially makes more sense to move in together. So why would you not do that? Well, the why not is because God has said that the proper place for sexual intimacy is the context of the covenant of marriage. And that we harm ourselves and we harm one another when we take that gift outside of marriage. That means that it's not okay for married people to have sex with anyone other than their spouse. Obviously, that's the sin of infidelity and that breaks the covenant of marriage. That means that it's not okay to have multiple partners. 
According to the Bible, there is an exclusivity to the gift of sexuality. It isn't meant to be shared with everyone, but with only one. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about David and Solomon? What about all the wives and concubines? Okay, that did happen, let's be honest. But it's never commended as a good thing. It's always viewed as a bad thing. And we're not supposed to imitate that. And just to make this circle of porneos as wide, as broad as possible, Jesus said in the passage we read earlier during our confession and assurance, Jesus said, look, even just looking and lusting is sexual sin, is porneos. And it's so serious that you're better off plucking your eyes out than looking and lusting at others. And yes, it is my understanding that homosexual sex is also sin according to the Bible. Let me explain that. I don't think that the Bible indicates that homosexual sin is a special category of sin. It never says that. I don't think that it's worse than cohabitating and sleeping together before marriage, although no one seems to get upset at me when I talk about that. I don't think that it's worse than looking at porn, which is surely a far more common sin than homosexual sin. But listen again to Paul's solution to the problem of sexual immorality. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That was his solution. Marriage between a husband and a wife is the gift that God has given us that creates the context to keep us from sexual sin. That's the fireplace. That's the hearth. When Paul said that either you have to be single and celibate or you have to get married so, so that you won't burn with passion and commit sexual sin, when he said that, he knew full well that it was not possible in that culture for a man to marry a man or for a woman to marry a woman. He knew that. He knew that. And he didn't seem to be allowing for an exception for committed and loving homosexual relationships. He simply said, either you get married or you don't have sex. That is what he said. You might not like that message. You might think it's too simple. You might think it's old-fashioned and out of date. You might think it's not nuanced enough, but that is what he said. And if your response is, well, he said that because he didn't know about committed and loving homosexual relationships, Fair enough, but God himself inspired the scriptures, and God himself knows about everything. And maybe you hear that and you say, all right, but back then they didn't have gay marriage, and now we do. Yes, we do. This is a good time to ask ourselves if this is one of those areas where our sexual ethics are supposed to stand out and be different from the rest of the culture. But some will object, but sexuality is part of our core identity. It's who we are. And how dare God tell us not to act according to our, our identity? Well, I think we should keep in mind that God is our creator, and he is well within his rights to tell us to do or not do anything. That's his prerogative. But second, our identity is not reducible to our sexuality. You are more than your sexuality, whether you're gay or straight. You're created by God Almighty. You're created in his image. You are the object of his love, and you are most true to your identity. I am most true to my identity when my life is lived in submission to God's authority, and that is true for all of us. We're made to worship God. We're made to obey God, and yes, that will inevitably involve denying yourself and making sacrifices. That is true for all Christians, and that is for our good. 
There is an unspoken assumption these days that if ever I'm told I can't do something that I want to do, then I'm being oppressed or treated unfairly. But we need to expose that kind of thinking for the, law, the lie that it is. Not everything that I want to do is good for me or for those around me. Jesus foregrounded this point right at the outset of his call to discipleship, right? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Those were the terms of discipleship. And therefore, it makes no sense to turn around and say, hey, what are you doing asking me to deny myself? Well, that was part of the package from the very beginning. We're not our own. We belong, body and soul, in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus. Well, by way of conclusion, let's think together about application. Let's remind ourselves, lest we've forgotten, that all of us have engaged in some form of sexual sin in our lives, all of us without exception. There is no one here who's better or worse or more deserving or less deserving of grace. We all equally need God's grace. And thankfully, there's enough of that to go around for all of us. So if you've sinned in the area of sexuality, don't feel ashamed. Trust that there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. And rest in your salvation, which is yours by grace and which cannot ever be taken from you. And once you're resting securely in that grace, the first thing to do is confess and repent if you have engaged in any sexual sin. And then to cease and desist, to turn from it if you're currently engaged in a pattern of sexual sin, whatever that is, flee from it. Do not play with fire. Do not build a fire on your living room floor. Whether you're looking at the wrong things or whether you're doing the wrong things, take your sexual sin seriously and flee from it. And be realistic enough to know that you won't win this battle on your own, so recruit help. Recruit help. That's probably the most important thing I'm saying. Talk to someone. Get support. Find accountability. That is your job. Don't grumble because others aren't doing it for you. If you're struggling in this area, you find someone and talk to them and get accountable and be in fellowship so that you can walk alongside with others who love you and can support you. My point here is that healing and victory are available, but it's going to take effort and accountability on our part to experience that. So don't give yourself a free pass or tell yourself that Sexual sin is no big deal. According to the Bible, it is a big deal. And we need to treat it as such. This is not a punishment. This is a path of blessing. Sexuality is a good gift from God, and we need to receive it and use it as he intended. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we bear your image. You created us and called us into your family. We are doubly yours. And so I pray that you'd help us to walk the path of fidelity, of faithfulness, in order to experience your blessing. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to know what faithfulness and obedience looks like, and I pray that you'd help us to walk alongside and encourage one another in this. I pray that you'd keep us humble, constantly aware, of our own struggles and areas of sin and not looking at others in judgment. I pray that you'd give us grace towards one another as we walk through these challenging issues and as 
we reach different conclusions or have different ways of understanding. I pray that there we would be humble and generous in our interpretation of one another and that you would give us the ability to walk in faithfulness. In Christ's name, amen.